0: And I'm going to go ahead and say what everybody in here is thinking. It is a good day when I get a little Al Green with my church. That's a good thing. I'm just going to say it. (laughs) But that's what we're talking about today. Let's stay together. We're talking about what it looks like to fight for your marriage. And I just, I was telling people that, you know, certain weekends when I'm up here and I know I'm gonna be speaking, the weekend cannot come fast enough. I'm so excited about what I'm talking about, and I just feel like, man, there's something in this for everybody. And I, I feel like that about t- this morning. I feel like that about talking about marriage. I just know that when it comes to marriage, I am an eternal, incurable optimist. I have hope for marriages. I have hope for my own marriage. And I have hope for every marriage in here. And one of the reasons I'm so optimistic is because of what Jesus said about marriage. When he was asked about marital issues, this is what he said in Matthew 19. He said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Two things that help me have optimism and hope for marriage based on what Jesus said. First, Jesus is saying that marriage has a God given purpose. Marriage is not just this random thing that happened in the course of human socialization. But the Bible teaches that God, the creator, created marriage. And he created it with a specific purpose in mind. And the purpose is what Jesus is referring to when he says the two become one flesh. Marriage, the vision for marriage that God has is oneness. A relationship that is so close that in the eyes of God, and in the eyes of the law even, people are seen as one. Two people become one. And that purpose is what marriage is all about. And the reason that that is the purpose is so it can be a walking billboard to all of us of what it looks like when we receive God's love. Because God invites us into a relationship with Him that is that intimate. And so I'm excited to talk about it because I I know that God has a purpose for marriage. But I want to say that along with being an optimist, I'm also a realist when it comes to marriage. And I recognize that there are people in here right now who are wrestling with this, who are wrestling through a tough marriage. Maybe you've had divorce in your past and you've wrestled with a marriage that failed. Or maybe you want to be married and you're just recognizing that, boy, this is a challenging thing. If I look at people around me, marriage is not easy. And that's true, but I'm optimistic because of something else that Jesus says. He also says that this is something that God has joined together. And what that tells me is not only does God have a purpose for marriage, but there is a God-given power available to people who are in marriage right now. And that's what we want to talk about today is how to tap into that God-given power for marriage. And God, I'm asking that as we do this, that you would be the teacher, um, that you would be the one that is communicating to the hearts and the minds and the lives and the situations of everyone in here, be they single or married, God. I just ask that something that's said today resonates and connects us closer to your heart. And I pray that when that happens, it just brings you um, honor. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the cool things I get to do, albeit infrequently, is perform wedding ceremonies for for couples. And it's just a great thing, great opportunity. But I have some rules when I do that. And one of them is, if I'm speaking at your wedding, I'm not going to talk for more than seven minutes. I'm just not going to go long. And the reason is because I remember when I was at the altar, I did not remember half of what was said. Because I had other stuff on my mind. You know, they talk about having cold feet. Well, I didn't have cold feet when I got married. I had hot feet, my feet were burning up, it felt like somebody had a torch under both of my feet. And the only thing that I could conclude is that I was about to pass out, so I'm sitting up there focused on keeping my knees bent and not wanting to pass out, I didn't want to be that guy, you know? Man, and while I had hot feet, Maria actually did have cold feet. Let's just say it took her a little bit longer to hit the aisle for the wedding march than it did at the rehearsal the night before, you know? Not, not long enough that they had to restart the song. That's, that's a really bad sign, not that long, but long enough to make me sweat a little bit. And she was kind enough to wait until after we were married um, and after the ceremony we had taken place to say, yeah, the reason I was delayed is because I was hyperventilating in the back. And I really had some second thoughts. So, you know, I mean, this is real marriage, right? This is the way it really is. Not the fairy tale stuff. This is the way it really goes down. So, you know, and, and one of the things we laugh about is even though we don't remember a lot of what was said, something did stick. Our friend married us. His name is Nelson. And something that Nelson said definitely stuck. And it was the analogy he used to describe marriage. And he based it on something we had done with him a couple months before when we went whitewater rafting. And he said, you know, marriage is a lot like whitewater rafting. And what he meant by that was when you enter into the water, when you're going rafting, you enter into the smooth part. You enter into the part where you can get your boat situated. You can kind of take your little plastic, wrap it around your lunch, tuck your lunch away. I mean, you enter into the nice, smooth part of the river. But what he said was just stay married long enough and the rapids are coming. That's just the reality of marriage. And so he talked about how to prepare for those times in your marriage. And that really stuck with us. Because I think to embrace marriage is to embrace the reality of what causes rapids. See, rapids are caused when a strong current comes up against big rocks in a river. And there's a reality of a current and a reality of rocks that is true in everybody's marriage. See, the reality of the current is this. When you get married, you marry a selfish person. Play that out. What am I saying? When you get married, you are a selfish person. That's right. Now, if you're like me, I really, I thought I was over the selfishness thing when I got married. I really did. I didn't think I was a selfish person, thought I was very giving, I was involved in other people's lives. But it only took, you know, the umpteenth argument about some stupid minute detail for me to recognize I am really interested in things going my way. I'm really interested in that. And, in fact, the only thing I'm interested in more is Maria being interested in things going my way. I'm really interested in that. You know, you're a selfish person. See, the current, is that's that's reality for all of us. We live up and we, we grow up in a society that says take care of self, look out for number one. And when you get married, it is a challenge to go against the current of selfishness and learn to selflessly serve another person. That's just reality. But not only is there the reality of the current, there are real rocks that people face. There are things that life will throw your way that are not expected. There are things that you can't plan for, you can't prepare for, there are surprises that come. And the question is, how do you fight for your marriage, even if it's a smooth place or if you're in the midst of the rapids? What does that look like? And what we're going to talk about today are four choices that you can make to fight for your marriage. And we're going to be basing the conversation on some words that a guy named Paul wrote to, the book, wrote to a people who were following Jesus in a city called Colossae. Um, years ago. And in this book, he's writing to them about their relationship with God. And particularly in this section, he's talking about what relationships with each other look like when God is at the center. So what we're going to talk about is absolutely applicable to everything we've discussed in this series. Friendship, if you're in a dating relationship or you're single, parenting relationships, it's applicable to all of those things. But we're going to focus on marriage today. In Colossians 3.12, Paul says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I'm actually going to read the same passage, but I'm going to read it from a different translation called The Message. And The Message is a modern paraphrase, and certain words in The Message just kind of pop. And this is one of those places where it kind of pops. And The Message... Same words say this. So, chosen by God for this new life of love, which I think is a great picture of marriage, that marriage is a new life of love, says, Dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the master, God, forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all purpose garment. Never be without it. I really like that phrasing, and I love this picture that Paul is painting of what love is, because he's saying love is something that you clothe yourself with. Love isn't automatic, love isn't a feeling that all of a sudden just strikes you and carries you on for 30 years of marriage. It's a choice, it's a daily choice if you're married. And there are four choices that you can make that he talks about in this verse that are really ways to fight for your marriage. And the first is you choose to sacrifice. You choose to sacrifice. You know, there's this part in the Bible that talks about my role as a husband. And it says that my role is to lay down my life for my wife. It's what Jesus did for the church, and I'm going to love her the same way, to lay down my life. Now, the reality is a day probably won't come when I have to physically jump in front of a bullet for Maria. I mean, I'm hoping that day doesn't come, just to be honest with you. You know what I mean? You know, so that's probably not going to be the application of that verse in my life. But what does it mean? And what I'm learning is what it means is there are daily small sacrifices that are ways that I lay down my life for her. It's about sacrificing in the small. I'll give you a very real-time example for us. Um, cleaning the kitchen. Cleaning the kitchen is a way that I can sacrifice in the small for my wife. See, my wife stays home all day with a 22-pound hurricane named Nathan. <laughs> And, um, you know, my son is incredibly gifted. Now, I know every parent says that about their kids. It's just true for my son. And he has special gifts, like the gift and the ability, even though he's 20 pounds, to totally tear up a kitchen in under a minute. I mean, like... I'm talking about when he goes in the kitchen, he knows how to get into every drawer, and there's Tupperware strewn all over the place. He really likes tea bags now, so he likes to take individual tea bags and just put them everywhere on the kitchen. So, I mean, it's a nightmare when I come home, and I know that it doesn't take a whole lot for me to clean up the kitchen. And if I can come home, we can have dinner, I can help get Nathan down to bed. And if I come down after that and just straighten up the kitchen, I know that's a way for me to sacrifice in the small for Maria. But you know what? There are certain days when I don't feel like cleaning up the kitchen. And there are actually some days when I absolutely don't want to clean up the kitchen. And it's the days when I don't feel like when I walk through the door, I was greeted as the superstar husband and father that I am. Like, I have issues on those days cleaning the kitchen. And it's easy for me in my mind to say, you know what? Let her clean her own darn kitchen tonight. How about that? Because I don't feel like I'm getting what I need. And this is what I know. At that point, I've got a choice to make. Am I going to have a 10-minute view of my marriage? Or am I going to have a 10-year view of my marriage? Because in the 10-minute view, it's easy to justify not cleaning up the kitchen. It's easy to say, that'll teach her a lesson. That'll help her appreciate me. In a 10-minute view, that works out. But if I take a 10-year view or a 20-year view or a 30-year view, what I recognize is even if we're having an argument in a spat, it is worth it for me to sacrifice in the small, particularly on those days, because it illustrates that I want to fight for my marriage and I will choose sacrifice Sacrifice, by definition, is when it's inconvenient for me. I will choose sacrifice. And that's something that you do, and you have an opportunity to do daily that illustrates that you want to fight for your marriage. Another choice that Paul references that you can make is you can choose humility. You can choose humility. I love how the message says, be content with second place. Hey, can I just tell you, there are going to be times in your marriage where you don't get your way. There are going to be times in your marriage where you might have the right answer, but you don't go in that direction, and you need to be content with second place. That's what humility is all about. That's what humility means, and that's what it's about. A good friend of mine is a mentor to me in a lot of different areas, and marriage is one of them, and he really gave me a great question to kind of use as a filter when it comes to humility. He said, all right, think about the issue and ask yourself the question, is it better for me to be right on this issue or be relational? Am I going to choose to be right or am I going to choose to be relational? Powerful, powerful question. Because if I choose to be relational, all of a sudden I recognize I need to be content with second place at times. I'm not going to always be first. And in the spirit of being relational, that's the best way. See, winning feels like losing sometimes when you're in a marriage. It just does. It just does. But you need to learn to be content with second place, and you need to choose humility. And when you do that, every time you do that, it's a way you fight for your marriage, the way that you tell your spouse, I am content. A friend of mine put it really well. He said, for me, what that boils down to is I want my wife to know she's my only ambition in our marriage. I think that's a great way to think about it. You tell your spouse, you're my only ambition when you choose humility and you're content with second place. And, you know, these first two choices, I think, are not easy choices ever, but they're probably easier to make if your marriage is kind of in the smooth part of the water. What if you're dealing with the rapids? What if you're dealing with some big rocks? I'm not naive. I know that there are people in here dealing with major, major issues. I know there are people in here who are married and are wrestling through an affair that's been revealed. And you don't know what that means for the future of your marriage. And you're wrestling with that thing. I know there are people in here who wrestle with substance abuse in their marriages. And that thing may have been going on for years and years and years. And it doesn't seem like it's getting any better. I know there are couples in here who have been hit with a long-term illness that they couldn't have expected, and quite frankly, even though they love each other dearly, it's testing the marriage. I know there are couples in here who have been trying to have children, and after years and years of trying, you're still wrestling with infertility, and it's causing wedges because you're facing choices. What do you do? What don't you do? What options do you try? What options don't you try? Who do you tell? Who do you not tell? And I know that these are big rocks facing marriages in here, and I just want to say that if that's where you are, I believe that God has power for your marriage, and I believe that these next two choices are ways that you tap into that power. The first is you can choose to endure. You can choose to endure. One of the things that Paul says we're to clothe ourselves with is patience. It's patience. Patience is a good word. I think there's actually a better word. That old King James version, the one with all the these and thous, man. There are a lot of places where I don't like to read that version, but there are some places where they really get it right. And this is one of them, because the word for patience in the King James Version is the word (laughs) long-suffering. Enough said, right? Doesn't need an explanation. I get that. Some of you are like, that's exactly how it feels to be married to the person I'm married to. Just don't say that out loud. That'd probably be a good thing to just keep in your mind. But the reality is you hit big rocks, you hit unexpected things, and the challenge is what does it look like to be long-suffering in a very, very difficult marriage? And that word long-suffering is not meaning I'm the victim forever. It doesn't mean I take this position of the victim. But actually what that word means is it's a gritty determination to grind it out. It's a gritty determination that says I will fight for my marriage. It's kind of like it's kind of like a team winning by one point and beating Pitt and being the Big, big champions against. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. Yeah. How about them Bearcats? Man, what a game. You know, but that's what it looks like when you're in your marriage. When you're down by eight, when you're down by eight and time is running out, are you going to endure? Are you going to fight for your marriage? And if you do, you're tapping into God's power for your marriage. And it's available to you. It's an option. But I think I'd do you a disservice if I didn't deal with some of the very real questions that you face if you're in that situation. Man, if you've been hit with a big rock, if something like that has just blindsided your marriage, I think a very real question you wrestle with is, what if I married the wrong person? What if I married the wrong person? What what does it look like to endure in a marriage that I don't think is right? See, there are things, Chuck, that have been revealed by my spouse that if I knew them before we got married, I would have chosen differently. But now I feel stuck. I'm in this situation situation. What if I feel like I chose the wrong person? And what I would say to you is, first, if you're asking that question, you're normal. You're normal. I think every couple has times in their marriage where these irreconcilable differences, these challenges that they face, these big rocks, really cause you to question, did I marry the right person or not? And I think it's in times like that where you need to think back to what is is marriage really about? Marriage is really not about finding the right person. It isn't. Marriage is really about becoming the right person and loving a person even in the midst of difficult situations in your marriage. That's how God loves us. That's how God loves us. But I also want to open your eyes to some realities, some just what the data would say. You know, the video that rolled in the beginning had some statistics on it. And one of the statistics that jumped out to me was the fact that there are couples who reported their marriages as very unhappy But the statistics said that if they held out for five years, that actually 78% of those couples had happy marriages at the end of five years. That says something to me about a gritty determination to endure and the benefit on the other side of that for marriage. You see, I think for many of you, if that's where you are, you know you have options. And divorce is an option. To say that divorce is not an option is to ignore another statistic, that 40% of all marriages end in divorce. I mean, so divorce is an option. The question is not, is it an option? The question is, is it the best option? And that 78% number should give you pause if you think divorce is the best option. Let me play it out for you like this. If I were to say to you, no matter where you're at, married, single, or whatever, if you want happiness, I've got a list of driving instructions. And these driving instructions are turn-by-turn instructions. And if you drive these instructions in 78% of cases, you'll find happiness at the end of that. If, I, if, if that was a sure thing, I would imagine that you guys would be lining up at the end of the service and saying, let me get my hands on those directions. And what the data seems to be saying, what I know the Bible is saying, is that if you want to be happy in your marriage, divorce is an option, but it's not the best option. Actually, the better option, the option that plays out is to choose to endure in your marriage. And I know that that's a challenge. And I know for many of us, there are marriages that are going to be in the 22%. I'm not denying that reality. I'm just playing the odds. I'm playing the odds. And the odds say, endure, that the greenest grass is most likely to be the marriage that you're in right now. And I think another real question, though, that you face is, but what if I'm the only one fighting? I know there's problems, but they're in denial. I'm totally up for seeing a counselor, but they refuse to get help. What do I do in that situation? What do I do if my long-suffering really doesn't have an end game? I don't know if I will ever get out of this place of long-suffering in this marriage. What would you say to me? And honestly, it doesn't matter what I would say to you, but what I would turn you to is what the Bible says about suffering and how it produces something in our lives. This is from Romans chapter 5, and it says, We also rejoice in our sufferings. I know that's crazy. I know that's foolish talk. I think of rejoicing in your sufferings. But why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. What this verse is saying is that there is something in you that changes when you take a position of endurance in your marriage. And what changes in you has to affect your spouse. It may not lead to reconciliation. Your spouse may walk out. But the change that happens in you is that there's a perseverance in you that you didn't have before, and that builds character in you that you didn't have before. And believe it or not, although it may not seem like it right now, that produces hope in you. And listen, your growth counts always. It doesn't matter if that marriage falls apart. What is being built in you when you recognize and feel God's love being poured out and even the most difficult situation of suffering through a marriage that may end, there is something in you that is lasting and that is produced. I'd love to say that everyone in here is going to be in the 78%, but that's unrealistic. But what I do know is 100% of those cases, if you walk through with the posture of endurance, there's hope for you. There's hope for you. There's God's grace for you. There's God's power to endure what happens on the other side of even a marriage that falls apart. And if you're here and you know that you're at a point of endurance, you're wrestling through that, what does it look like to long suffer For this marriage, then this fourth choice is one that you're staring right in the face, and it's the choice to forgive. It's the choice to forgive. Paul uses a word for forgiveness in Colossians that actually has financial implications, kind of like canceling or absolving a debt. And what he's saying is, listen, there's the opportunity in marriage, there's the opportunity in any relationship to incur debt. And if you've been married, you know you will incur debt. There are going to be things you do. There are going to be choices you make, words you say. There are going to be things you act upon that you wish you could take back, but you can't. And when you do those things or say those things, you incur a debt with your spouse. But your spouse, and when it's you, when you're the one one that's been harmed, you have an opportunity to make a choice. Are you going to be a person who keeps score? Are you going to absolve your spouse of debt? Are you going to forgive? And then the power to forgive that Paul references is that we understand that this is exactly what God does for us. See, the Bible says that I have an incredible debt toward God. I have incurred debt with Him from every choice that I've made that is inconsistent with His desire and His heart for me. And the Bible calls that sin. I've incurred this incredible debt. And yet the Bible says that while I was busy incurring this debt, he sent sent Jesus and Jesus died and actually paid the cost for my debt. And that God absolves me of my debt as I receive Jesus and his love in my life. God married the wrong person when he chose me. But that debt has been absolved through Jesus. And what Paul is saying is because of the power that comes from receiving that kind of grace from God, we can actually release it and give it to other people. We can be forgivers of other people. We can absolve other people of debt. And if you're here and you're married, you can absolve your spouse of debt. I'll tell you a story of how this played out in a real marriage in our community. Um, They gave me permission to share their story. Tom and Lisha Broad are friends of mine, and they shared their story a couple of months ago in a different series. And in their marriage, they wrestled with the big rock of an affair. And in their case, Lisha stepped out of the marriage and had an affair. And I remember Tom being interviewed about that experience. And they asked, How can you forgive her? How can you forgive? I mean, you made a commitment before God and before other people. She stepped outside of that commitment, and Tom's response just blew me away. I mean, it was very simple, but deeply profound. He said, You know, I just understand that this is how God forgave me. And so it's the least that I can do to give this to the woman I love, to, to forgive her. That's mind-blowing. How how do you do that? How do you do that? You don't do that in human power. I don't think you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and do that. I think there is a power that he's tapping into in that moment, a power from God that strengthens their marriage. And this is a power that Paul talks about earlier in Colossians when he says this. In Colossians chapter 2, he says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith. I'm going to keep that up for a second. What Paul is saying here is, You can receive God's grace, regardless of where you are. This is not reference to married people. This is everybody. You can simply receive God's grace. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to have a a debt repayment schedule with God. You simply just say, God, if Jesus actually did pay my debt that I incurred, I put my faith in that. I receive what you have for me. And when you do that, what this verse is saying is you get power. There's a power that begins to root you and build you up in the grace that you have in Jesus, and it actually strengthens you. And it's that power that you release when you forgive your spouse. It's that power that enables you to choose humility and be content with second place. It's that power that enables you to sacrifice in the small or in the big for your spouse. And it's that power, friends, that is changing marriages right before our eyes. It's happening in our community. Two stories to encourage you. One is um, we do a group called Divorce Rebuilding. It's a community group, and we, we have that because we recognize the 22%. We recognize that in some cases the marriage does dissolve and it doesn't work out. And we want to have a place where people can come and be around community. We can help them grow in a very difficult time of how do you adjust to a marriage that has failed. And so we, we love to see people in that group, not because we love divorce. We hate divorce. But we know that if that happens, you need a place where you can be real, you can be honest, and you can kind of process through what's happening in your life. But I actually got really excited this fall to hear about a divorce rebuilding dropout. Because after two weeks, someone in that group decided to step away from trying to heal from a divorce that was actually in process, and they chose instead to run after their spouse and pursue reconciliation in their marriage. And I just think that's amazing. I think that's amazing. I don't know if that person's in here or not right now, but way to go. Way to fight for your marriage. That's what it looks like. That's the gritty determination to endure, the gritty determination to forgive and to run after God and say, God, if there's power available for me to restore my marriage, I want that. I want that. I love that people are choosing that. Another story. good friend of mine, who um, same guy that builds into my marriage that I talked about earlier, we were in a, in a context of people sharing kind of the highlights of our last year. And we were limited to kind of 10 or 15 things that really marked your year. And one of them for him, a high point, was a dinner he had with a couple. And I mean, this is a guy who is passionate about marriage, so he has dinners with couples all the time. I'm like, well, why would this couple show up on your top 15 list for the year? And he said, well, you need to understand their story. He said, this is a couple who just a couple of years ago found themselves in a major, major marital crisis. And things for them got so bad that two independent marriage counselors, two marriage counselors that don't know each other, hadn't talked to each other, both basically declared their marriage dead and told them, I don't think you can actually survive the challenges that you're facing. Can you imagine that kind of despair? Can you imagine being at this point of even the professionals are telling you, we're not sure we can help you? And he said, so why this is a highlight for me is this couple invited my wife and I over to dinner, And they wanted to celebrate the fact that they have come through that difficult time and that dead marriage is being resurrected. And that couple is actually finding healing and they're staying together and they're fighting for their marriage. And it just made me smile because I'm like, that's the kind of power that God wants to release into marriages in our community. So what we're going to do is I don't want to just talk about this stuff. I want to actually give you a practical way to tap into this power that we've been talking about. And what we're going to do, um, we're going to sing a little bit of the song. The band is going to sing. I just want you to listen. We're going to sing a couple of the lyrics to the song Forever. Because that song really describes God's enduring love for us. And that is the power that God wants to release into marriages in this place. I know it. And then we've got some couples who are volunteers in various marriage groups here at Crossroads. And they're just going to be up front at the end of the service. And they just want to pray with you. Just come alongside you and invite that kind of power to be active in your marriage. And if you're here today, maybe you're with your spouse, maybe things are rocking and rolling and you're in a great place, maybe you're in a tough spot. I'm actually going to ask you to take them up on the offer and come up front and and get yourself prayed for. And maybe you're here by yourself. Maybe your spouse couldn't make it for whatever reason. Maybe you're separated. Maybe you're on the brink of divorce. But I want you to know I believe there's hope for your marriage. And if that's where you are, I'm going to ask you to also come and be prayed for. Because I really believe That this year, some of the greatest redemption stories we're going to hear in our community are going to be around marriages that have been restored. I believe that to the bottom and the core of who I am. And I know that that's not going to happen just because you have some pithy principles that you're following. It's going to happen because you're tapping into a power beyond yourself. God's power to redeem and restore your marriage. So God, I'm just praying that in these next few minutes as we listen to the words of this song and then um, as couples respond, God, that you would just meet them right where they are. And I pray against fear, I pray against shame, anything that would keep them from tapping into this power and making a statement to each other that they're willing to fight for their marriage. I just pray for boldness in this place as we listen to this song and as we respond.